Well, I'm going to say it again. Good morning, church family. Happy Sunday to you. You could be anywhere, but you're not. You're here. Thank you. As Bill says, very encouraging for me to look out and see you, see my family, my forever family every week. Um, we share a lot of things together. Now we're going to share some wisdom about God, and we're going through this series of getting back to the basics. Hopefully you see the significance and the value in that. Uh, as much as probably there's very little new information going to be imparted, it's nice to be reminded that this is the core around which we are bonded together as Christians. There are things that we believe that make us Christians together. There are things that we believe that bond us together as the family of God. And, and there are some of these things, we call them essential Christian doctrines, that if you don't believe, hopefully you're just ignorant of it. Because if you are not ignorant of it and don't believe those things that we call the essentials of the Christian doctrine, then you have a problem. You've either been taught in error or you need to redo your thinking. Why? If I have the wrong idea of a Christian doctrine that's an essential in Christian doctrine, then I need to be fixed in that so that I can more fully understand the God who wants a relationship with me. That's one of the reasons why we're doing this. We're trying to go through and remind ourselves again, what is it, this message, this thing we call the gospel, that brought us into the family of God, and now we are here in the family of God trying to grow as much as possible and grow together in love. And so we are growing together around the core of Christian doctrine that defines who we are as the family of God. And so we want to go back through that and just say, maybe I didn't totally understand it. Well... I'm not going to promise that after today's message, you're going to totally understand this one either. Because I'm not sure I do. This is our second point. How many of you have that little document that we handed out in the bulletin last week? I, I, I got mine bigger. I raised, you know, um, enlarged it on my computer so I could read it easier because it's kind of small print. And I, I'm, I'm old and I need big print. But it says... Number one, we talked about last week. We believe that the Bible is the, or, is the inspired, only infallible, authoritative word of God. How many of you heard anything last week that you didn't already know? Probably not. But it was good to be reminded that the basis of all that we know about God and about our salvation and about our eternal destiny comes from one place, the direct revelation, special revelation of God through his word. And that is the basis of everything. There's no sense going to points two through seven if you haven't accepted point one because it is the final authority for all faith and practice that we believe in as Christians. It is the, 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 the life-transforming message, and so we're starting with that. This is the basis of how we know we are Christians, how we even understood how to become a Christian. 
was through the Word of God, the message and the truth in Scripture. And so Scripture is going to enlighten us on a lot of things that we would never know outside of it. There are things we can know. God says and told us in Romans chapter 1 that I could look outside, that even the pagan could look outside, look at the world, see how all these things have been put together, the human body, nature, the world itself, the universe that we live in, and they should understand that there's a God, and that's called natural revelation. But there are many, many, many things about God, about our condition that we only know because God imparted it to us through his direct revelation in Scripture. And so we recognized from last week that that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that they were told what to write and that they wrote it down and it was perfect and infallible. And so through that infallible, perfect, final authority, we're going to talk about God himself in his Trinitarian state. So point two, that which is the subject of this week's sermon. Now i got to give you a little sidebar here. <clears throat> this is actually, as it has invaded everything else, this is a commercial. It's actually probably going to be, I'm not going to put minutes on it because I'm always later than I think, it's going to be some sort of a 30 to 40 minute infomercial. Because next a week from this Monday, we're going to start a class called Doctrine. And through the efforts of some wonderfully gifted and godly people, a curriculum was put together so that those people who desired the fullness of the Word of God could come and learn and understand Christian doctrine. Show up! We got plenty of room! Mondays and Thursdays, 7 to 9. And we always have a good time talking about Christian doctrine. Now, doctrine is this thing that it's a little bit under fire at times. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. Because some people say, well, it's, it's too hard to understand. And there's too many things in there. And, and, and even Christians don't agree on them. So why should I bother? Okay, so let's just say, I know this is not going to get to the Trinity, but we're going to get to the Trinity. Let's just say that we're going to examine our Christianity as a whole. Okay, so what is it to be a Christian? What does it involve? Okay, I break it down, and maybe I'm the only one. I don't think so. I think if you think about it, you probably agree with me. I break it down into three sections, and they're all related. But, but first things, and I, I've told you this before, and, and I, I use this point a lot. I think there are two things, right, that human beings can, can be involved in that are the most important things in all humanity. One of them is being reconciled to God. We call that salvation. We call that coming to Christ. We call that becoming a Christian. Okay, I gave myself to God. I, I became a Christian. That's the first step in Christianity, I have to, let's, let's talk about that real quick. Christ died to save sinners. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. 1 Timothy 1, 15. All have fallen short and sinned and fallen short of God's standard. Romans 3, 23. The consequences of that sin 
is death or eternal separation from God, Romans 6.23. God sent Jesus, and he was both perfectly man and perfectly God, Colossians 2.9, John 1.14. Jesus lived a sinless life while he was here, 1 Peter 2.22. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins by his death on the cross, John 3.16. God raised him from the dead, Acts 2, 24, and Romans 1, 4. That salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Salvation is a free gift of God. We do nothing to earn it, Romans 5, 15. God asks the believer to trust him and turn from his sin and repent, Acts 3, 19 and Luke 3, 13. If we believe this message and accept it in faith, it means that you are now saved and you are a child of God, Romans 10, 9, and 10. Okay, that didn't take me very long. In fact, probably less than two minutes. That was the gospel message all the way through, and it had attached to it scriptures that I gave you. Now, you didn't have to look them all up, but trust me, that's what they say. But don't trust me, look them up. Um, That was pretty simple, wasn't it? Was there any hint or uh, suggestion of the Trinity in there? No. I'm going to tell you no. Okay. Did I understand from any of those scriptures or any of the statements that I just gave you that God was a Trinitarian God? No. Okay, so did I need to know that? In fact, I'm I'm going to actually ask you. Right now, and you can raise your hands. I'm actually, this is not a rhetorical question. How many of you understood the Trinity when you accepted Christ? Well, a few of you. Uh-huh. Guess what? Did I raise my hand? No, I didn't. I had no idea. Okay, I, I knew there was a God, the Father, God, the Son, Holy Spirit, but I didn't understand the Trinitarian nature of God, and yet still. God saved me. That part of my existence in Christianity required that much of Scripture to come to God. So what's the use of the rest of it? Is that the only point in my Christianity to be saved? No, because I think the second phase of our Christianity is to be transformed back into the image of Christ. And so God gives us that part of Scripture that leads us to salvation, but he gives us the rest of Scripture because he wants us to be transformed for two reasons, or really one big reason. Two reasons is he wants us to find satisfaction in and fulfillment, and identity, and meaning, and purpose, and security in life, and he wants relationship with us. So I am going to give you the rest of Scripture, God says, and I am going to tell you about myself so that you and I can have relationship with one another while you walk this earth in your Christianity, and you will be transformed back to the image of Christ through the truth of Scripture by the power of God's Holy Spirit in your life. Okay, so this line of thinking came about as I was asking myself, well, what difference does it make? Why does God need us to know about the, tra- the, the, the triuneness of his existence? Why is that an important thing? Because God wants us to know him. And so this is a difficult, this is a difficult 
statement. This is a difficult concept. It's a difficult doctrine because we as human beings have no basis to understand it. We don't understand how something could be one and three at the same time. So God gives us some help there. But I, I, I recognize, okay, it's not important for me to come to Christ because I, I looked at the doctrines and I looked at the, at the scriptures that, that said, okay, here's how you become saved, your first st- step. And the second step is you're going to be living out your Christian life here on earth after you've been saved and before you die or I come back. That is part of the sanctification process. Okay, and so all of my words are important for you once you're saved to be transformed and to be in relationship with me. That's why we study Christian doctrine. And, but I've been in churches and, and talked to pastors that thought doctrine is really just divisive. What we really need to do is just get everybody saved and God will take it from there. Don't worry about studying the Bible. Don't, just, just love Jesus and everything in your life is going to work out. Well, then why did God give us the whole rest of Scripture? Because he needed us to know more than that. Because he wanted us to know more than that. Because he wants relationship with us. He wants us to have relationship with him. And so he gives us all of the attributes of himself. And he gives us these doctrines. Some of them indeed are difficult to understand. This one being maybe right at the top. But he did it because he loves us and he wants us to know him. And so... This is what we said as part of Machias Community Church's doctrine of faith to be an essential element of Christian doctrine, to understand the triune nature of the God who saved you, who's transforming you, and who in the end, in your third phase of Christianity, you are going to experience a perfect relationship with God in the new heaven and the new earth in a new body that will no longer know sin. That's why we study scripture. That's why this doctrine is important. Even though you didn't need it to be saved, God still is giving it to you as a gift. So we can read, we read the basic gospel message and we got the statement of faith. And here's the infomercial. Sort of, actually the whole thing is kind of an infomercial. Um, we look at theology, and it's broken down. I'm going to read you from the Thesan book, so you just have an understanding of all these different gifts that God is giving us in his doctrines. And the first part is theism, who God is, and it's the, a definition of his existence and other non-Christian worldviews. Uh, part two is the scripture or bibliology. How did we get the Bible? Is it genuine? Is it credible? How did they put the books together? The inspiration of scriptures. How, was it, how, was it, how were they imparted by God? Then we have theology, the statement of who God is, what he wants, what his commands are, and what he does. And the nature of God, his attributes, his decrees, the works of God in creation, the works of God in his sovereign rule. We have angelology. The origin and nature and the fall of angels, their work and their destiny as angels. Then we have anthropology or the study of man. The origin and his original character. How did he fall? What is his condition now after the fall? What is his problem and how is that problem going to be solved? And what is his nature? And then the imputed and racial consequent, radical consequences of his fall. 
In soteriology, the study of the doctrines of salvation, the purpose, the plan, the methods of God to bring people to salvation, the person of Christ, the historical views, what was his pre-incarnate state, the person of Christ, the humiliation of Christ as he came to be a man, the two natures and the character of Christ, both his godness and his manness. The work of Christ in his death, the work of Christ in his resurrection, ascension, and his exaltation. The work of the Holy Spirit, the election and vocation of God. The conversion of human beings. How does that happen? How do we actually go through the process to be saved? What's happening in a person's life? How does it come about? Justification and regeneration. Union with Christ and adoption, sanctification, this process of being transformed, perseverance of the saints, and the means of grace. Then there's a section on ecclesiology and a section on eschatology. My point here is that God has given us an enormous amount of information, and some of it is hard to understand, like the Trinity. And so studying doctrine is not a futile exercise. God wants us to know the deep things of God through Scripture. And yes, sometimes it's hard and sometimes you have to work on it. But I really, really encourage you to be serious students of God's Word because it is life-transforming and it enriches the relationship by giving you a fuller knowledge of who you are and who God is. There's my plug for doctrine. And so one of the aspects of doctrine, as I read through the list, is you're going to see we're going to be talking about the nature of God in his triune self. And one of the things that we also talk about is the bullseye in doctrine. How many of you have heard that have been around uh, contenders, right? There's a bullseye, and it goes like this, and it literally is a bullseye, and it has four rings, and those rings say to die for in the center, The next ring out is to defend, doctrines to defend, or ideas to defend. The next one is ideas to discuss, those things which we could agree to disagree on and still love one another. And then the outside ring is doctrines to dismiss, when you hear things that don't line up with the truth of Scripture. So knowing that, knowing that there are those things, that there are things in Scripture that we can, number one, say, if I don't believe this, I'm in trouble. That would be those things to die for. If, if they said, hey, you, you know, are you going to stand up against the wall and I'm going to shoot you if you don't deny this, that's an essential doctrine of Christianity. And so we put this, this doctrine of the Trinity in our statement of faith, and we say that's an essential, that you, you may be ignorant of it, but once you are made known, you need to believe it, even though, what you're going to talk about, you probably don't fully understand it, and guess what? <laughs> Neither do I. So, those are the things that we're talking about. I just wanted to bring a little bit of enlightenment as to why is it that we are even studying these things that don't pertain necessarily to how I got saved. But it is essential. Okay, so, God. The doctrine of the Trinity. Mm, Okay. We're going to get to these verses in a minute. So what is the doctrine? How many of you have in your mind now what you think is a good illustration of the Trinity or a good example or uh, I'm going to say you're wrong. I don't think there is one. Now, there are some. I've heard water, right? Water can be steam and ice and, and, and liquid all, you know, not at the same time. But whatever sort of illustration you've ever been given, chuck it. It doesn't work. 
because human beings have no basis to understand how something can be three in one at the same time. We just don't. Because we're not God. Because we live in a world of time and space and matter and material things where one thing is one thing. And if you chop it into three things, it's no longer one thing, it's three things. How can something be one and three at the same time? It's impossible. Not for God. And so even when I just say God, what do you think of? Go ahead, answer. What do you think of? When I just say God, because most people would say, oh, I'm, you're talking about God the Father. Because that's how we denote him, right? We, we call him God the Father. But that is not God. I was co- corrected this morning by Josh. Thank you, Josh. For using the wrong pronoun for the Holy Spirit. I called it an it. But it's not. It's a person. There are three persons. So let's look at the doctrine of the Trinity. One God and only one God. Three persons. Eternally distinct. One essence. One substance. One God and only one God. Three persons, eternally, eternally distinct, but one essence and one substance. Let's see if the scriptures back that up. One God. So in Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says this. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know what they call that? Ron used to say it all the time. Somebody said it. The Shema. And so the Jews repeated this endlessly, all the time. They would just say it by rote. It was just ingrained in them from Hebrew school all the way up. This is the Shema. This, this is the, we're, we're calling God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I will tell you, they hadn't seen the personification yet of Christ. And when they did, this stood in their way. God is one. And in human understanding, that just means, hey, there's just one God, and he's one. Don't tell me that this guy that just was born to Mary is God. It doesn't make sense. And in fact, it's heretical. And in fact, when you say that, we're going to stone you to death. And then it says, as far as the only God in 2 Samuel 7.22, along with many, many others, therefore you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. There is no God beside you. And so we got this concept that God, this God, we call him God the Father, but he's one, and this is one thing. But we're saying, we're trying to tell you, in three persons. And does Scripture back that up? Because we think of God and God the Father, and we pray, and I pray to God the Father, and yet Bible tells us, and, and we're going to look at this doctrine of the Trinity, to tell us, no, there are three eternally distinct persons of the Godhead. And so we'll look at that. The first one, we see the three persons in Genesis 1. Here we go, 26. And then God said, let us make man, let us, in the plural, make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over this fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, 
and all over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God says, let us, plural. So we get a sense, even in the very first verse of Scripture, that God is telling us he is more than one. And so we see then um, in Matthew 3, 16... And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on him, and from, and behold, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that would be who? Yeah, Christ. And who's saying it? God the Father. So you see all three persons of the Godhead are represented in this one verse. The Spirit of God, it says, was there and descended upon Christ like a dove and came to rest on him. And then the voice, the Father God from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus being the incarnate version of the God-man. And we see it again. In John 14, 16, when it says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with, with you and will be in you. And so Jesus is promising what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit to come and inhabit the lives of believers. And so we've seen all three persons of the Godhead represented clearly in Scripture. They are eternally distinct. That would be Genesis 1, uh, 1 through 2. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I don't have it. But God the Spirit is eternally... And then in John 1.1, and I think I do have that one. In the beginning was the... I'm sorry, I do have it. In the beginning God rested in the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So even in creation, we see a distinction between God the Father and God the Spirit. The Spirit, And then in John 1, 1, we see in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word is who? The Logos. The Greek word Logos is used as word there. And who is that Logos that was with God and is God? That would be Christ. And so we see that there is an eternal distinction in Scripture that Christ was with God always, but was distinct as the Son of God. Eternally distinct. So then we look at the concept of one essence, one substance. So in Deuteronomy 6.4, we see, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So he is one. We've seen clear examples of all three persons of the Godhead, and yet it continues to say, and we know the truth, that the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. And then in Isaiah 46.5, it says this, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no other God. I equip you, though you do not know me. God himself is saying, no, I am all only one. And so we've seen all three. We've seen the fact that they are eternally existent and distinct throughout time, and yet they are one. 
one essence, one substance. One God, three persons, eternally distinct in one essence and one substance. The Athanasian Creed says this, We worship one God in the Trinity, and the Trinity we worship in unity. We distinguish among the persons, but we do not divide the substance. The entire three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with one another so that we worship complete unity in the Trinity and we worship the Trinity in unity. Okay. The reason I added some of that other stuff is because talking about the Trinity probably is only going to take about 10 minutes. Do you understand it? One God, three persons, eternally coexistent, and yet one substance. Without all the metaphors that we use, I, I, I got to say, I still don't have the reference point to totally understand how one thing could be three things. But do we have to fully understand it for it to be true? Now, this is a good question because you're going to have to ask yourself this question many times as a serious student of the Bible. Do I have to completely understand it for it to be true? No. <laughs> In fact, two things. One, the Bible is a difficult book because there's a lot of very deep truths in it. Two, if God could be easily understood, he wouldn't really be God. And so people would take that point and say, well, you're just really copping out, Tim. You're just really saying, just believe it on blind faith. And I'm saying, okay, just believe it on blind faith. Because I can trust the things and test the things that I do know absolutely to be true and the Bible claims itself to be true and I understand as a fallible, sinful human being, I'm never going to understand it completely. This is one of the doctrines that is very hard for people to totally grasp because God is bigger than your mind and he's bigger than my mind and that's okay and it's not some sort of a disproof that scripture is just asking you to shut off your brain and just accept everything without questioning and just accept everything is true in faith and just be an idiot. No, but it is saying God is bigger than you and this is an aspect that you have no no history with, no relationship to, and, and you do not and cannot completely understand how God in his spirit can be three things all at once and yet be one. So we don't have to understand everything in Scripture for it to be true. But let me ask you this. Do you have to understand everything in Scripture to accept it? The answer is the same. No. But does that mean that we don't want to question what we're hearing. No, it doesn't mean that. It means be like the Bereans. It means God wants us to dig in deeper to his word so that we can come to an understanding of what scripture is trying to say so that we can know God more, have a greater relationship with him, and it is a guide and a transforming power in our lives. And so, yes, God is saying, even though Scripture is hard, that's why I think a lot of people don't sign up for doctrine. Yes, it's hard. Well, partially because it's got a lot of homework. God was not stupid when he wrote the Bible. He understood that we were going to have difficulty with some of it. We could even say, well, how then is it, how, how can we know when, when really smart, 
sincere Christians disagree on certain doctrines. Has that ever caused a problem for any of you? I mean, does it ever cause you to doubt the Bible? You see, well, here's a really good, and I, he seems to be saved guy, and he's saying this, and there's another guy over here, another preacher, and he's, he's really, I think, a good preacher, and he's been saved, and he understands the Bible, and he's telling me something different. You ever had that happen? It's going to happen because we are sinful and broken. I heard, um, uh, boy, now the name is escaping me, R.C. Sproul. And he was asked one time, he was, he's, he's, if not my favorite, one of my favorite theologians. Uh, and he was asked one time, you know, do you understand how, the, the Bible perfectly, he said, no. I can't because I'm sinful and I'm broken and it puts a veil over my eyes and I pray to God to lift the veil so that I can't understand scripture. But no, I don't perfectly understand it. And we won't perfectly understand everything, but it is not an excuse not to want to know and not to have a love for the truth and not to strive to understand it. And so here we are, and this is one of those difficult doctrines, and God is just saying, look, I I recognize this is above your head, but I want you to know this about me. I'm three, and I'm one, and I'm the same, and I'm consistent, and I never change and I love you, and I'm willing to save you. And it all is true. And so don't let doctrine or the difficulty of understanding the Bible scare you away from digging into the deeper truths that God wants you to know, this being one of them. Because there's an enormous benefit in my 30 30 minutes so far infomercial about doctrine I know that it can be difficult, but there is an amazing benefit and gift to digging into the richness of God's Word. He put those things in there for you, like the Trinity. He put that in there so you could know Him better. Don't waste the opportunity or be scared away because sometimes doctrine can be difficult. So why is it that this particular doctrine is important. God said it is. Or he wouldn't have put it in there. And it is who he is. Okay, now do you recognize that in your process of salvation that there were different missions for each part of the Godhead to bring you back into reconciliation with him? God the Father ordained it It says he chooses before the foundation of the world for his elect, those whom he will call, and he devised the method by which salvation would come, and he gives us the faith. Jesus the Son made it possible to be reconciled to God through his atoning sacrifice on the cross who provided expiation and propitiation, who took away, expiation took away the penalty of our sin and then added propitiation, a restoration of the relationship between us and God. And then you have the Holy Spirit, who was there, and it says it in Titus 3, 4 through 7. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the works that we had done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of his Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 
so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So all three parts of the Godhead were involved in your salvation, and all three parts of the Godhead are involved in your sanctification. God ordained it and made it possible by providing a way to you be reconciled that started the process. Jesus came and secured your sanctification by paying for our penalty and reconciling us back to God, and the Holy Spirit accomplishes it in us as we walk the Christian life if we submit to its power and listen to its leading. So God in all three persons saved you. God in all three persons is changing you. And God in all three persons is going to be living with you in the new heaven and the new, he- in the new, heaven and the new earth in your new bodies. And so, and and when that comes, and when the veil of sin is lifted from our eyes, we will know what we can't know now. It says in Scripture, and I will know like I am known. And God in the Trinity is going to make perfect sense. Praise God. So, what, one of the reasons for studying this doctrine is because there is also a lot of error. So I'm going to give you some things to keep your ears and eyes open for. Uh, I can tell you this. The church itself struggled with this particular doctrine for centuries before coming to a conclusion. Obviously, it was difficult. Obviously, all persons of the Godhead are talked about in Scripture. How do we reconcile this? The Bible never actually comes out and defines the Trinity. It is a culmination of arguments as you look at the different Scriptures that we've looked at to come to the conclusion that, hey, the Bible says there's one God. The Bible claims that there are three gods. How do we reconcile that? There's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and yet there is just one God. This is above our our ability to understand. And so this church really struggled with it. And during its struggle with it, it, it exposed a number of errors. Let me go through those with you quickly so you understand if you hear this, it is not true. The first one is called tritheism. And that would be, well, there really is sort of one God, but he's really three different gods kind of grouped together as one. Maybe like uh, conjoined triplets. You know, they all have a different head and everything, and, the, and they're three separate ones, but they're kind of enjoined by a body. No, that's not true. There is not three gods. Tritheism is not true. There's one God, three persons, one essence. And that was, that was an error that... that Uh, permeated the church and in fact is a big stumbling block um, in a lot of religions where if you say that there is a triune God in the Muslim religion, they're probably going to shoot you because there's only one, Allah. And this Jesus guy is not God and there is no such thing as the Holy Spirit. And so this tritheism was an attempt to say, okay, I don't understand it, so I'm going to say there's just three gods. Not true. Modalism is another one that crept up in the church. And that is that there's just one God, but he reveals himself in different ways at different times. So one time I might reveal myself as God the Father, and then I'll suck that one back in, and then I'll reveal myself as God the Son, and then I'll take that one back, and then I'll reveal myself as God the Spirit. But I'm only doing it partially at a time. And that's called modalism or different modes for God. He just, he's just revealing himself in a different way. Not true. Not true. 
God can be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit always, all the time, co-equal and, and, and through eternity. And so we have tritheism, we have modalism. The other one was that God uh, created Jesus the Son and, Jesus, and, and the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. Not true. They are not created beings. They are co-equal and co-existent forever. And so if you hear any of those, you know that it is wrong. The last one is that the Holy Spirit is not really one of the heads of the Godhead. Okay, so this one was the hardest one to dispel. This was one that the church took the longest to deal with. and that Because they, they, they described it or defined the Holy Spirit as a force emanating out of God to accomplish certain things in our world. And so God would just send his, his essence out into the world, and that was his force or his spiritual power. And, and it wasn't really a person. It was just the power of God, the force of God working in our creation. Wrong. The Holy Spirit is a person, and as Josh corrected me this morning, and I called it an it, I said, yeah, the, every believer has it in their heart. Well, no, has him. And we can pray to God, the Father. We can pray to Jesus, the Son. And we can pray to the Holy Spirit. And we're always praying to God. This is a hard one. And there has been a lot of error and confusion around this subject throughout Christianity still today. And error will creep up again and again. Be on guard. Be saved. There's only one way through the blood of Jesus Christ and accepting his sacrifice on your behalf to be reconciled back to God. But then, strive to know as much about God and as be as much like God as possible. God wants to restore us. God wants relationship with us. Know the truth so that you don't fall for the lie. Know the truth, defend the truth, and love the truth. The Trinity is truth. It comes in direct revelation from God in his word, and it matters. Believe it, even if you don't understand it. Let's pray. Father, we are so, first of all, we're so probably ignorant of your word that we shouldn't be. And you, we are so blessed by having it. And yes, it is difficult, God, sometimes for us to understand it, but we are so blessed when we love it and read it. Lord, help us to be people of the book. Help us to direct our lives by it and, and be changed by it. Father, we know that your goal for us after you've brought us back into relationship with you is to transform us for our good and your glory. So, Father, we just pray that we get out of your way and let your Holy Spirit transform us so we can experience all the blessings of being a child of God right here, right now. Lord, we thank you that you were willing to pay the price to send your son to die so that we could have that relationship. Lord, help us not squander the opportunity. And I just ask you sincerely, in Jesus' name, amen.